From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Michael Bennett didn't make the cut for the next presidential debate. How will he keep his campaign moving forward? And does he think the DNC is treating candidates unfairly? Then, public library service is protected under state law. So why are the libraries and the museum in Moffat County facing an uncertain future? As far as full access to the library, our patrons do not have that anymore. It goes beyond money. We'll explore the big picture in Colorado and find it's not so easy to shut down an entire library system. Plus, we asked for your feedback. Hundreds of you responded with how to improve mass transit on the Front Range. We'll sort through the ideas. And what if you had no memory of your childhood? That's the starting point for a new thriller by Colorado author Carter Wilson. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Colorado's Democratic Senator Michael Bennett didn't qualify for the next presidential debate, but he is adamant that he won't be dropping out of the race anytime soon. Bennett talked with CPR's public affairs reporter Benta Berkland about what's next for his presidential campaign, whether Congress can be productive this next year, and what it means for his work in the United States Senate. You didn't qualify for the next round of presidential debates. How will you gain momentum and get your message out when you won't be on the national debate stage? I think the key is continuing to talk to voters in the early states of Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. These debates for them are a little bit like preseason football, uh, I think, and they have not been the key to people really gaining momentum in the race to begin with. And I think we've made a decision that my campaign can go forward, and that's what we're going to do. The criteria includes reaching 2% in four national polls. To an outsider, that doesn't seem to be a, a super high threshold. Why do you think you're not breaking that barrier? Well, it may not seem that way to an outsider, and it may not have seemed that way to me. I, it, is, it turns out that it is hard to do. And um, in the mo- most recent national poll, there were 12 of us that were tied with 1% in the polls nationally. That was me, Beto O'Rourke, Amy Klobuchar, there were only three candidates. There, there was Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and, and Elizabeth Warren who were in double digits. There were two other candidates at five. So I think what that shows is that the race is very, very early. I've only been in it for four months. We're five months away from Iowa. And I'm going to have to do well in Iowa and New Hampshire, obviously, to stay in the race. But I think it's very premature to be making a judgment about that now. In the letter your campaign sent out, It insinuated that the DNC may be unfairly setting its criteria to advantage the front runners in the race. Do you have evidence of this? Well, I think that it's what the evidence is that they were very arbitrary in the way they set the criteria, and it did advantage the the front runners in the race. And it hasn't reflected progress that people have made in the race because there are people on the debate stage who have spent the entire primary season losing ground in the polls and who are now down around 1%. For me, it's been a gain to get up to 1% in in Iowa or in New Hampshire to get closer to 2% and to be sixth in one poll in New Hampshire. So I just think it's a puzzling way to approach it, um, but we're going to just keep going. So along those lines, what is next for you in the presidential race? Well, I'm going back uh, on Sunday to Iowa with my family, and we're going to spend a few days there, and then it's off to New Hampshire again. Just continuing to meet with people in their living rooms and in their storefronts, listening to 
what they're thinking about the you know the future of the country and what they're thinking about this current president and the need to select somebody else. So we hear you were instrumental in getting your former boss, Governor John Hickenlooper, to join the crowded Democratic primary to run for U.S. Senate. What advice did you give him? Well, I wouldn't put it that way. I didn't really give him advice. I, I mostly told him the pluses and minuses of being in the Senate. I did say to him that I thought that anybody that had the opportunity to serve uh, in the Senate at a moment when our government is as broken and dysfunctional as our government has, uh, is, has a duty to try to make a difference. But John had to make this decision on his own. And I said at the beginning of the conversation that I thought that what would be more useful than my advice would be just trying to lay out the, the pros and cons of the job. And that's what I tried to do. On the campaign trail, you've talked a lot about the dysfunction in Washington and in the U.S. Senate. Is it a job you think you want to keep long term, potentially? If this is unsuccessful, I certainly intend to run again for the Senate. I I really believe what I said to John Hickenlooper, which is that this is a moment in the history of our democracy when every single American is called upon to do what we can do to save this republic, to save the democracy, to make sure we pass on a thriving economy to the next generation of Coloradans and the next generation of Americans. And if the place I can do that is from the White House, I'm going to be glad to do it from there. If the place I can do that is from the Senate, I'll be glad to do it from there. I don't, you know, as dysfunctional as the place is, I see that as a call to fix it, not as a reason to turn away from it. And I think all Americans need to feel that way. We need a progressive era in our politics like we had at the end of the last Gilded Age when Americans said we've had it with the income inequality that we've got in our country. We've had it with politicians serving themselves and not the people. And we're going to make a difference. We'll pass constitutional amendments to make sure women have the right to vote and that senators are directly elected by voters. And I think we're going to have a period of reform like that to overcome Citizens United and the money in our politics to end political gerrymandering and to recapture a set of priorities in Washington that actually reflects what the people in a state like Colorado want, which is a state that's exactly a third Democratic, a third Republican, and a third Independent. That is where the solution lies, I think. Your Senate colleague, Cory Gardner, he gets a lot of heat from liberal activists because he doesn't hold large public town halls. And it's been a while since you've had an event like that in Colorado. How is running for president impacting your ability to represent Colorado in the Senate? It has been a while, and I, and I miss those town halls. And But I've, my, my entire staff has fanned out across the state of Colorado in August having listening sessions in every single corner of the state. People can get information on that if they want it from my Senate website, which is bennett.senate.gov. We've been having meetings about um, rural issues, telecom, agriculture, the state of the economy, and because I, I need to know, going back in in September, what people are thinking about. But I've, I've also kept a very close ear to the ground myself, and I have spent the last 10 years in a continuous conversation with the people of Colorado. Do you think senators and other members of Congress owe their constituents those types of forums, or how useful do you think they are? I do. I think they're, they're, they are the most, absolutely the most useful engagement I have with people in 
in our state are my town halls. And uh, and I start town halls the same way. I never give a speech. I always say, please ask any question or bring any criticism that you have. I need to hear it all because we have to have an authentic conversation if we're going to rescue this democracy. During your career in Congress, you've at times been part of some major bipartisan legislation, not always successful, like trying to reach a grand bargain on immigration reform. Is there anything you could see the Senate... Uh, doing to cut deals right now, or do you think this Congress is just going to be at a gridlock until the next 2020 election? I'm afraid we're going to be at gridlock until the next 2020 election. I mean, you look at an issue like infrastructure, which should be very straightforward and very bipartisan, and President Trump ran on infrastructure, but uh, he doesn't have the competence in the administration, candidly, to um, to write an infrastructure bill or submit one to the Congress. So we are broken. I mean, the place was a mess before Donald Trump got there. It's one of the reasons why he was sent there. The immobilization of our exercise in self-government by Mitch McConnell and by the Freedom Caucus has been severe and serious. And it's something that America has to find a way to overcome. In 2016, people sent a reality TV star to Washington because they thought they couldn't do any worse and they figured they might as well blow the place up. Now I think we need to have a conversation with each other as friends, not as enemies, to figure out how we're going to rebuild a framework for us to be able to achieve bipartisan outcomes. Because on every single issue that we face, in the end, we have to not just respond urgently to problems, but we need to have solutions that are durable, that will last longer than one president or or two years of a single Congress. And the only way that's going to be able to be achieved is if Democrats and Republicans at home insist that Democrats and Republicans in the Congress work together. Right now, I think for the foreseeable future, until Donald Trump's term is ended, I think it's going to be very challenging to achieve that. One final question here on the BLM headquarters move to Grand Junction. On the one hand, it's jobs and prestige for a part of the state that often feels that they're getting left out. But some Democrats in Congress are claiming it's a move that's actually going to weaken the agency and was meant to weaken it. What are your thoughts? I've not had a chance yet to study the detailed proposal. I did call the Interior Secretary and have a conversation with him after he proposed it. And um, when I have, have a chance to reconnect with them again, I'll have a more substantive answer. I will tell you that what I am deeply worried about today on, on this score is the Trump administration's stripping of the methane, the fugitive methane capture rule that the Obama administration put in place. This is an assault on our environment, assault on climate. The industry told Trump that they didn't want this rule uh, stripped away because it would create too much uncertainty and, frankly, too much pollution. It's another reason why Donald Trump should be a one-term president. We should never have a climate denier in the White House again. Okay, thanks, Senator. I know our time is wrapping up, but we appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Bye. That was Colorado's Democratic Senator Michael Bennett talking with CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland. The museum and libraries in Moffat County are on life support after drastic cuts to their public funding. Now the city of Craig is looking into how it can help. And as CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf learned, legal marijuana might play a role. 
The Museum of Northwest Colorado in Craig is a trove of dinosaur fossils, Ute Indian artifacts, and memorabilia from the state's gold rush days. So upstairs, this is what we're nationally known for. This is our cowboy gunfighter exhibit. Um, and Assistant this is Director Paul Knowles display. beams with pride as he shows off this collection of rare old West guns, saddles, and cases of ornate bits and spurs. It smells like leather in the room. It really is the full gamut of cowboy paraphernalia. The museum houses well over 100,000 of these relics of Colorado's past, but it faces an uncertain future. So we have zero public funds coming in right now. Moffat County has been the museum's main source of funding for years, but it cut funds by nearly half last year and offered zero this year. Noel says the museum has been operating on its reserves. And we have enough in there right now to get us through about June or July of, of next year. Once we hit that point, then we're, we are out of funds and it's, and it's over. The county's library system has also seen significant reductions in public funds, a 77 percent cut for the 2019 budget that left the library with just about 114000 to run three branches. Public library service is protected under state law, so the county is required to provide some funding. Moffat County Library's interim director, Keisha Bickford, says they already cut hours by more than half at their Craig branch and reduced staff. As far as full access to the library, our patrons do not have that anymore. She's been talking to the county and city a lot lately. I'm hoping to help them understand the importance of the library, not just that every community has one and that they have to have one, but down to the very fine detail of why it's important to our community and who utilizes it. If things don't change, the library system could shut down by the end of next year. If that does happen, then Moffitt would be the only county in the state without a public library service. That's according to Colorado's state library. Moffitt County Commissioner Ray Beck says when he took office in 2017, he, quote, inherited a financial mess. The county was still recovering from the recession, and the decline of the coal industry in the area hasn't helped. They've had to make changes in how they did the budget, and they had to prioritize. Beck says a number of departments took a hit. We don't want to see it go away. Uh, But at the end of the day, you only have so much money, and, and you can't fund everything in economy that we're in right now. A citizen group recommended a property tax increase last fall that would have provided about $1.2 million a year for the museum and libraries. Commissioners approved it for the ballot. It failed. Craig resident Janie May Morley opposed the tax proposal. She says many felt it was unfair, especially since there had already been a city sales tax hike. They felt that the library and the museum were custom-picked so that the tax would pass. And it was basically a, a no message to our commissioners. We wanted them to make better use of the tax dollars they already had. But Morley is a supporter of these institutions. And not long after the election, she went to the museum, cut a check, and asked, Now what can we do as a community to make sure you're funded? Since then, she's been attending county commissioner and Craig City Hall meetings, staying vocal on the issue of funding the museum and libraries. I'm here again to respectfully request that you consider funding the museum and the Craig branch of our library. Paul Knowles of the museum has also been attending city council meetings, lobbying the city to step in. He says the museum needs about $300,000 annually. At a recent meeting, he talked about the economic value of the institution, how it drives tourism. We're shaking hands with people from around the world in Craig, Colorado, and kind of introducing them to it. So we kind of see ourselves as a partner to make sure that whatever our new economy looks like, that we're going to be an integral part of it. The museum attracts roughly 12,000 visitors a year, more than half coming from outside of Moffat County. The city is looking at how it can help. One idea? Retail pot. Craig actually doesn't have legal weed. But the city will ask voters in November if they want it within city limits and whether to tax it. That money would go to fund the museum and the library's branch in Craig. 
At a recent meeting, council member Brian McKenzie said he doesn't want residents to feel like the only way to save the museum and library is to vote for pot. I want to make sure that through our own budget that we can come up and say, yes, we're going to help support the county and we're going to help support the citizens of Craig by funding it through our own self. Moffat County is considering matching city contributions to the museum. Meanwhile, museum staff have held off on deciding what happens to all of those artifacts if they close because they're hopeful the city, county, and community will figure something out. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. Well, it turns out it's not so easy to shut down an entire library system. Joining me to talk about the operational and legal nuances of public libraries in Colorado are state librarian Nicole Davies and attorney Kim Setter, who specializes in the state's library law. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Good morning. According to Colorado law, a public library has to meet certain requirements when it comes to responsibilities, management, and access to services. Nicole, I want to start by talking about access to a public library. What are the minimum requirements in terms of access and services? Sure. So essentially, the library needs to be open a minimum of 20 hours a week, and it needs to have paid staff. And that really is a nod to the fact that... um, You can enjoy books and love books, but it's a profession. And so to be a librarian, um, you have studied the science of library sciences, and um, you're there with knowledge that you're able to transfer to the community. So um, there's also um, commitment to having internet access and a collection management plan, a plan for how you're going to use the local dollars you've been entrusted with. And how common is it for a state to have a library law on the books? Pretty unique. Um, It's pretty special, actually, that Colorado has that library service is important enough that it exists in our state constitution and that it's outlined in um, 30 plus pages on how um, library services should be executed in the state. It's pretty unique. Kim, how do you shut down an entire library system? Well, the only way you can do that under the Colorado statutes is by a vote of the electors within that library system. Um, Defunding, of course, happens as a practical matter, but actually eliminating the library entity can only take place with a vote. And are there exceptions to voter consent to close a library system? For example, in the case of Moffat County, what if the library system simply doesn't have the funds to stay open to the required minimum of 20 hours a week and to do so with paid staff? Yes, there, there is no exception to that vote requirement to eliminate the library itself. However, as a practical matter, what we're seeing happen here is that there isn't sufficient funds to, to meet all the priorities of the county. So what happens under the law is the library may not today be able to fund and keep its doors open, but it, has, it remains in existence And under the library law, the county has to continue appointing a library board. While that board may not have funds to keep the library open as required, uh, as Nicole just discussed, that board can force election questions for funds dedicated to the library. It can seek donations and grants. And it can wait for the economic climate to change or for the political climate to change uh, to county commissioners that have differing priorities. And that's In other di- words, it becomes okay. a political question. And that's the difference between defunding and abolishing. Yes. 
A mill levy has been a significant source of funding for Pueblo County's library district for two decades. However, it will expire soon, and in November, voters will decide whether to continue it. Here's Executive Director John Walker talking with KRDO earlier this month. If this tax does expire, if it's allowed to expire, then the libraries, the operations, the programming, and the facilities themselves are not sustainable. KRDO reported that up to two of the seven branches could close if voters turn down the mill levy. Nicole, what options are available to public library systems when they're facing difficult budgeting situations? There are there are other funding revenue streams that can be explored, um, but essentially nothing is going to be as reliable or consistent or adequately funded as tax dollars, truthfully. Um, They're funded through sales tax dollars. Um, There can be grants and um, donations that are collected. But the impetus of having a public library, it it, it is for the common good. It is the people's university. And there is an expectation, arguably, that the community would fund such a resource. So really, tax dollars uh, tend to be the best place for library funding. Often when we see these types of closures... um, Libraries, there's multiple branches in a community. So while um, tragically, if that were to happen with Pueblo and they would have to close two branches, um, there would still be multiple branches that could be meeting the needs of the community. Um, So it's unfortunate that the hours might be cut and the location might not be as convenient, but there would still be ongoing library service in in that library community. And I also wonder, can they reopen these branches once it's financially viable again? What's that process like? It, it it's t- tends to be a joyous experience in that the library branches are coming back online. Um, absolutely, if a library system can afford to maintain the facility while it's closed, uh, just because as you have a building, you can't leave it abandoned. There's collections in there that need uh, temperature control and things like that, um, unless those can be transferred somewhere else. There's there's a lot of logistics in maintaining a facility when it's not being used. Um, that said, if a library can afford to hold on to those branches, they can go dark for a time and then come back online when there's adequate funding. Moffat County Libraries did explore outsourcing its management to East Coast-based library systems and LLC. But last May, the board voted to end negotiations with the for-profit company. Have you heard of other libraries doing something like this to keep the doors open? I am not aware of any libraries in Colorado that are currently outsourcing the management of their libraries uh, to this for-profit um company. I know that that company exists and operates in other states, but Colorado has not actually um, had any systems that have had to go that direction. And Nicole, we've spoken quite a bit about the definition and requirements of a public library, but what role do public libraries play in communities in the about 30 seconds we have left? They're the community living room. It is the place that everybody is welcomed. Um, it, it's, as I mentioned earlier, it's the People's University. So so it's there for so much more of just learning and discovery and exploration. Um, it's there to make a community better. Thank you so much for joining us today. Nicole Davies is the state librarian. Kim Setter is an attorney who specializes in library law. Colorado Matters continues after the break. There is no shortage of ideas about how to improve mass transit along the Front Range. We'll sort it all out. I'm Avery Lill. You're with CPR News. On her way to visit her boyfriend in the United States, Paola, a woman from Chile, is stopped at customs. And she never actually makes it out of the airport. At any point, is somebody explaining to you exactly what you've done wrong? 
Yes, I try marijuana in a place which is not legal for immigrants. That was my mistake. On the next episode of On Something Love in the Time of Legalization, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You're back with Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. Ridership is down at RTD, even though population is growing. Earlier this week, CPR's transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner asked for your ideas on how to improve transit service in the Denver area. And you came through with about 500 responses. Nathaniel's been sifting through those and joins me again today. Hi, Nathaniel. Hey, Avery. So you've looked through all these ideas from listeners and readers. What stands out to you? By far, the biggest single thing that people think should change about RTD is cost. More than 100 people said it's too expensive. And why do you think that is? Well, I mean, it is really expensive. A three-hour fare is $3, and a ride to the airport is more than 10 Monthly passes can bring that down if you use it often enough. But some, pe- some people told us it's just still cheaper to drive and park. And that might be true, but people often leave out all the costs of owning a car, insurance, depreciation, things like that. And what is RTD doing about its high prices? Well, they just launched a discount program for low-income folks, and that can knock 40% off of ticket prices. But it that's a pretty small um, that's a pretty small program, and the reality here is that fares usually go up, not down for most people. In fact, RTD plans on fare increases every three years. So to make fares go down, the agency would need to make up fare revenue somewhere else, like a tax increase. And some people said, yeah, they should do that. They should raise taxes so fares can go down. Another popular idea is to increase frequency, so how often the buses run. Arthur Genheimer says that he wants more local service and more frequent service. It takes so long to wait for the bus, it's faster to walk. Yeah, and 70 people told us they want more frequent service like that. Right now, only the most popular routes have very frequent service. Think like Broadway, Colfax, buses that go up those corridors. You do see it in rush hour in some other areas, too. Is RTD going to expand frequency? So they're talking about it. One idea is you make a grid of bus lines with service like every five or ten minutes. So you can get where you're going pretty quickly. You do might have to transfer, but because they come so often, it's not a big deal. And they're talking about that specifically in high-use areas areas like a Broadway or Colfax or Federal. But the rub here is that if RTD were to increase frequency in those places, they're going to have to cut it somewhere else. There's only so many buses you can run, probably in areas that where people don't ride it very often, like the suburbs would it would come at the expense of those buses. So there'd be a trade off there. Right, right. They only have so many funds, so many buses. So in contrast to higher frequency is more coverage. And that means more routes outside of the Denver core, buses to get from one suburb to another. And some people said they wanted that. That was pretty popular. Maybe 35 people told me that. When I decide how to get around town, I think about how long it's going to take me to get there. What do people say about that? Yeah, speed's a big deal. Another 50 people said they wanted faster service. Listener Brian Mayo said he wants express trains. Right. I mean, all of us that have been to Chicago or New York, like we we know the goodness that is an express subway. Uh, <laughs> that's when like a, a train skips a bunch of local stops. Um, but that's not really possible on RTD's lines. It just isn't the infrastructure, the right of way needed to do that here. But limited stop buses and bus rapid transit, there's I saw a lot of support for those. And I do have some good news. RTD is planning on building out of network a network of BRT lines on busy streets like Spear, Federal, Colorado. 
Mark says he consistently hears from coworkers that they can't depend on RTD to get them to work on time. Yeah, punctuality. 40 people said RTD needs to stick to its schedules. Buses are often in the same traffic as cars, and that can slow them down. But there's a few things we need to know about this. RTD does not own the streets that its buses operate on. The cities do. So if places like Denver or Englewood or Aurora gave RTD an entire lane to work with, or at least gave them priority at traffic lights, those buses probably could run faster and stay on schedule. But I mean, you're talking about handing over a lane of traffic to RTD, and that would be super controversial uh, because still most people drive in Denver and they don't like to see lanes that they can't use. What are some of the more atypical ideas that we got? So one interesting one was to run smaller buses on less popular lines. People don't like to see big empty buses taking up space, and smaller buses would be cheaper. Another one is to make driving more expensive. Toll highways and downtown roads, increase parking costs, things like that. People said it's too easy to drive, and they pointed out that driving is really bad for the environment and uh, air quality. Instead of making RTD easier, make driving harder. Right. Cool. Oh. Sounds awesome. <laughs> what, what about people who don't like transit at all? Uh, we heard some from some of those folks, too. And they said, it's just, just abolish RTD. It's not worth the money. But folks on the other side of the argument will say buses are more efficient at moving people than single occupancy vehicles. And researchers say that just building bigger roads doesn't really help congestion, especially in a growing metro area like Denver. There's only so much space, right? And once you build a nice wide highway, they say, more people start to use it, and then pretty soon it's full again. Nathaniel, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. CPR's transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner sorting through some 500 responses after asking for your ideas on how to improve transit service in the Denver area. Let's start with a what if. What if you lost all memories of your childhood? What would you risk to get them back? Or to put it another way, how important are memories? That's the question at the heart of a new psychological thriller by Colorado author Carter Wilson. His book is called The Dead Girl in 2A. Carter, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. I've got to tell you, I am a little disturbed that we are sitting in Studio 2A right now. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Okay, well, that, that makes sense then. It was meant to be. Hopefully. Uh, This book is intense and it's complicated. Um, Why don't you start with a little bit of an elevator pitch? Yeah, it is intense and complicated. But with all my books, I always think of an opening scene and that's what I start with. And then this opening scene, I thought of a man and a woman meeting on an airplane, seats 2A and 2B. And I thought, well, what if they they each had an independent sense that they knew each other, but not even just a light sense, but a visceral sense, even by smell. And how would that conversation form? And so they spend the entire flight trying to figure out how it is they know each other. And then the only thing they have in common is that neither can remember their childhood before the age of 10. And as the flight descends into Denver, the woman confesses to the man that she's going to the mountains to kill herself. And the, the, what happens in the book is all about what happens after uh, they get off that plane and she disappears into the airport. And we have these characters, Clara and Jake, they strike up that conversation on the airplane. And Clara feels desperately disconnected from people. And in that way, Jake is really Clara's complete opposite. He's deeply troubled about what's going on with the people closest to him, his family. Um, and I want to have you read from uh, the very first scene in that book. Sure. Jake Buchanan placed his palm on his eight-year-old daughter's cheek, hooked a strand of chestnut hair behind her ear, and wished again that he could change the past. 
M lay on top of her bed in her room, beneath a ceiling light needing two of its three bulbs replaced, and Jake thought her scar seemed a deeper shade of purple than usual. 37 stitches. That's how many it had taken to sew up his little girl again. The scar wound from just above her right eye across her temple, then up over her ear, looking like a millipede forever crawling on her face. All Jake could think was, I'm sorry. Jake was driving his daughter when they had an accident and she was hurt. And that's one of the things that's really put his life at a crossroads when he boards that plane. What is he thinking about at this point in life? Well, he's trying to do what's right for his family, but further complicating matters is that Jake has always suffered from not knowing his past, not knowing anything before the age of 10. And in the last year or so, he's starting to lose more of his memories. And he's only in his mid-30s, so that is further um, unnerving him. And so he is he's going out to Denver to take a job to help pay for his daughter's surgery. Um, but he's, he's riddled with complex thoughts about why he's losing his memories all of a sudden. And memory is really, it's at the heart of this story, not just for Clara and for Jake, but also for a couple of other pivotal characters. Why did you decide to write about that? Yeah, memory has been a thread in um, all all six of my psychological thrillers. And, you know, it's actually 10 years ago this year that my father passed away from early onset Alzheimer's. And so this was a book that I finally just wanted to completely confront memory head on because memory is both beautiful and horrifying. And, you know, you you can escape from a lot of things, but you can't escape from your own mind. And I wanted to have these characters struggle with all those thoughts and feelings in this book. And is it a topic that you write about because memory or the lack of it, it's a frightening topic to you? It's certainly something I think about. Um, I, you know, you, you certainly worry about how you're going to age and what's going to happen to you. And so I like to explore, uh, you know, I, there's a lot of paranoia in a lot of my books. And, you know, memory is at the heart of paranoia, uh, knowing what's real and what's, what's not. So that's, that's a tool that I use to kind of evoke, yeah, evoke feelings for the readers in this. There are some really creepy elements in this book, even Thank before you. Jake and Clara meet. Each connects separately with a man named Landis in Boston. He lures them into what he calls clinical trial or a, a clinical trial to help them with their memory issues. And briefly, what does that involve? Yeah, that involves um, getting these two characters to take pills. And I really wanted to have these characters so desperate that they'd be willing to go to this clinic and start taking this medication from this this stranger. So I really wanted to push them to the limits to have them so in need of wanting to know about their past that they'd be willing to do that. And the drug in this book, it's a real drug that is used in this trial. Scopolamine? Scopolamine, yeah. It's... It's a pretty amazing drug. It's uh, it's it's been used for a lot of different things over the years, um, including experimentation. But it can be a very suggestive drug, and it can cause memory loss. So I don't want to go much further than that for fear of spoiling this for people who read the book, except to say that a lot of the plot unfolds in Colorado. That's different than other books that you've written. Why set it here? Yeah, I usually don't write about places I'm real familiar with. I enjoy kind of exploring new areas, but. Aside from wanting to write about memory, I knew I wanted to write about the Colorado mountains because just like, uh, just like memory, the mountains can be beautiful and horrifying. You can, uh, you can have a wonderful day in the mountains and you can also get lost very quickly in the mountains. And as I was, as I was unfolding this um, in my writing, I, it started to kind of dawn on me that I was approaching uh, the Maroon Bells, which is where a lot of this takes place, almost like the island in uh, the TV show Lost. There was kind of a mysticism about it, and, and I really wanted to evoke that sense. 
in true thriller fashion, this story is very, very complex. How did you map out the plot for something like this? It was terrible. It was, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't outline. So, um, all my books, I just start with that opening scene and I spend the entire, the entirety of the book trying to figure out, okay, who are these people? How do they know each other? So I got about 150 pages in and I was so in the weeds and not knowing where this was headed. So I took about a month off and I just covered my office walls in parchment paper and took about 10 or 12 different colored markers and just started writing words just to see, okay, is there something that's going to spark an idea about how this proceeds further? And yeah, it took about a month and then it all kind of unfolded in front of me and, uh, and I went on from there. So you were really on this journey along with your readers as you're writing it. Yeah. Is it scary for you to sort of lose the plot? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's scary to not even know if there's a plot at all. Um, so you, you you go along the way and then you hope that your subconscious is working. But what's great about it is you'll have that what if moment. The whole book is about, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? And when you have that moment and you realize, oh, this is what the book is about, then it completely unfolds and you realize, okay, not only did I surprise myself, but now I'm going to surprise my readers because I didn't see this coming at all. And you also have a day job consulting in the hospitality industry. How do you find time to write books and why is it important to you? I just, you know, I started writing books 16 years ago and I realized that's just now what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, whether I have a full-time job or not. Um, It's just kind of a part of me. But, and I'm a firm believer in there's, you have enough time to do anything you're passionate about, right? So I, I write early in the mornings and I write in the evenings and my goal is 500 words a day. If you can do 500 words a day, which I can do in maybe half an hour, you can easily write a book a year. Carter, thanks for joining us serendipitously in 2A for this conversation. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Carter Wilson's new book is The Dead Girl in 2A. He's won three Colorado Book Awards for his previous work. He lives north of Denver in Erie, Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The Seven Peaks Music Festival kicks off today in Buena Vista, Colorado. The Labor Day weekend event is was launched last year by Nashville-based country artist Dirks Bentley, who we heard from yesterday on the program. This year's lineup includes Bentley himself, plus Marin Morris, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Steep Canyon Rangers, and Colorado's own Claire Dunn. Once upon a time, there was a girl running round in a Daddy's old truck couldn't wait to see the world and shake off that dust. And once upon a dream, there was a land of bright lights and big city boys were fast and the girls talked pretty. Dunn grew up in Two Buttes, Colorado, in the southeast corner of the state, population 43 or maybe 42 now that she's moved to Nashville. Since winning Best Female Vocalist at the Rocky Mountain Country Music Awards in 2016, Dunn's been busy touring, recording at a home studio she built herself, and squeezing in time with family in two buttes when she can. Recently, my colleague Ryan Warner met up with her in Fort Collins aboard her tour bus, parked behind the Sundance Steakhouse and Saloon where she was performing. What is this life like? Do you like it? I love it. The worst day doing this is better than the best day, you know, farming and ranching where I'm from, you know, so that's a tough life. This is not a tough life at all. And you know that ranching life. You did a lot of that work yourself on the farm in Two Buttes. 
Yes, I grew up on a little teeny tiny farm and ranch, and it was just all hands on deck. Growing up, it was one for all, all for one kind of thing. It's a way of life that I know very well and I miss. You have a joke about the population of two buttes. <laughs> well, okay, so Google, I think, officially says, or at least last time I checked, that it was 43 population, and I was like, there is no way. And so my joke is like, I think they took the census at Christmas time when like relatives were home visiting families because I don't believe that there's actually 43. <laughs> Let's talk about your music. So the track My Love, it just has a huge sound. It's catchy. I realize I have been singing it to myself at the office and that has to be really annoying for my colleagues. My heart is wide open. song is really at its core about passion you know loving whoever you love with passion and not being afraid to we all have past experiences not everything goes right we might get hurt you know we kind of get a little bit guarded sometimes and this song is really just a message of not letting that past experience hold you back give me an example when you've been burned and afraid to get back on the horse yeah well Sometimes, especially with this lifestyle, with being a musician, you're a little bit of a gypsy. (laughs) You're, you know, you are everywhere, all over the place. Not everyone understands that. And that is very personal because it's like, man, why wasn't I enough to overcome that? Or, you know, why wasn't I enough that this lifestyle didn't matter? My love is a fire. You can't want it. saying about your love that it burns like a burn pit? Oh, bourbon. (laughs) Burns like a bourbon. Yeah, you know the way a bourbon kind of burns going down, but it's a good kind of burn, you know, and then you feel really good. (laughs) I have been singing, it burns like a burn pit. (laughs) Hey, I love me burn pits, okay? Maybe I should change the lyric. And maybe, like, you know, I could get a few free burn pits because I love them so much. So thank you. You just gave me an idea. (laughs) Growing up in Two Buttes, I understand that you loved to dance, Mm -hmm. but it was not easy to get to dance class from Two Buttes, Colorado. Oh, no, not at all. I was very lucky, though. We had a little dance studio about an hour north of the farm. What town was that? Oh, the town where the dance studio was was Lamar, Colorado you know, right along 287 on the way to take you from Denver to Dallas. You know, so that studio became a a haven for me growing up. It was a form of expression. I learned how to express myself. And so much of how I think to this day has to do with motion of dance. How does the song move? How does it make you feel? How are you going to be able to move to this? So I'm picturing your, what, your mom, your dad driving you an hour each way to Lamar to dance class after school? Yes, they drove, my mom drove me and um, she, I think, literally wore out an old suburban engine taking me up there. My parents, they each came from farming families and, and ranching backgrounds, but 
they weren't encouraged like they encouraged my sister and I to follow whatever their dream is. Like, it was kind of like this old school sort of like, well, if you're not a farmer, you're, you know, you're nothing kind of thing. And so when they had my sister and I, you know, they've been very open with us about it. They And they love ag and they love what they do, but they wanted us to have the freedom to choose or not. The farm, the ranch will always be there to come home to if we want to, but they wanted to help us find what our dreams and passions were. So that's how dance came into my life because I was just this little crazy kid running around the house singing and dancing around and just jigging. And my mom was like, what do I do with this child? And when I was in kindergarten, she asked me, it's like, there's a dance studio. Do you think you'd want to go? And I remember it. I remember having this feeling of like looking around this room and I was like, I am dancing. And I was a kindergartner and I was like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing thing. And I told my mom after, I was like, can we do that again? So did you discover your ability to move before you discovered your ability to sing? Oh, that's a good question. I never thought about that. Um, I don't know that I was thinking about whether or not I could sing when I was little. I was just thinking about, I love this. And I didn't care if I was good or not, you know. And I was probably not. I was awful, I'm sure. But, um... I feel like I was doing them both kind of around the same time. Like the first time I sang a song in public, I was about seven. So your song, Tuxedo, is about loving a good man, Mm -hmm. a rancher, a guy who has rough hands, a dirty t-shirt at the end of the day, and you say, my baby don't need no tux, tux, tuxedo. This song got me thinking about what must be a tension in country music. So country's so often about humility, the workaday world. I think it's often about simplicity. And yet, country music is also showbiz, the glitz and the glamour. Is it hard to stay grounded in show business? Even though you're in a genre that celebrates the everyday, that celebrates the rancher, that celebrates the farmer. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like for me, I'm very lucky. if there was ever a moment or anytime there is potentially a moment where it becomes more about the glitz and the glamour than it does the realness of it I'm surrounded by people who are like okay Claire back down to earth you know like (laughs) like my parents would be like oh yeah okay well there's chores outside there's a horse stall that needs to be cleaned yeah if you could just when you're done writing that song get out there and do it Or, no, it's actually get out there and, you know, go help out and then finish your song, you know. So I think I'm very lucky that the roots that I come from are very deep. And not to say that they haven't given me wings. They have. But they're always there, thankfully, to remind me what's important. Why don't we wrap up with Cowboy Side of You. Set it up for us, will you? Cowboy Side of You is one of my favorite songs that I've put out so far that I've released. I released it as an independent artist. 
prior to having a record deal, you know, a lot of my start came from touring the country, playing every dive, honky tonk, any place that would let me come play. I was touring there in an F-150 pickup in a trailer, me and three guys. And so that song was very impactful, not only because, you know, the message of it and the song is saying basically you can have a cowboy attitude and be a city slicker. You know, the cowboy attitude for me is all about marching to the beat of your own drum, not being afraid to blaze your own trail in whatever it is you want to do, whether you work at Walmart or you're CEO of a, you know, Fortune 500. So that is number one why that song was so special. But also, I was, it was at a time in my life when I, was, I didn't have a record deal and it helped get me one. And people, you know, sing that song everywhere I play now. So it was very special for me. You rode in, in the dark, like a Sunday's people, you stole my heart. Said a love, that's your feel, and we kicked it into gear, and we drove it like hell. Just rolling to the trellis, just like John Wayne would do. I love that cowboy side of you. Love that cowboy side. Country musician and Two Buttes native, Claire Dunn, speaking recently with my colleague Ryan Warner aboard her tour bus. Dunn is back in Colorado this weekend to perform at the Seven Peaks Music Festival, which runs today through Sunday in Buena Vista. Thanks for joining us for Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. Sitting pretty, my camera riding right